This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome aboard episode 14. I'm really excited to be here today to talk about aviation careers. This is a podcast where we talk about all careers aviation, whether it's flying or being a mechanic or say you want to be a flight instructor or a flight attendant, uh, say you want to go into customer service. You know, I'm, I'm especially excited today because one of the topics we've been talking about lately is business and private aviation or what a lot of people call corporate aviation. And Corporate aviation is aircraft that's flown by corporations and also individuals. And uh, these jobs, there's going to be about 30% of the jobs out there are in corporate aviation and business aviation and private aviation. Well, that's gonna, there's going to be a big influx here of people being hired in the next few years as the major airlines do start hiring. Just to give you an example of uh, what business aviation is and how they utilize their aircraft, of course, they fly around employees, customers. They also move parts. It's pretty interesting to see how some companies, like, they'll, have, they'll need a part right away. Well, they'll throw that into a corporate aircraft, get that part to the factory, and the factory will be up and running overnight. Some other examples, and we've talked about some of these before, are like mapping and aerial survey, photography, uh, you know, agricultural applications and uh, fish and wildlife news. There's just a, a modicum of different things. And, you know, you'll see a list of uh, different things that the National Business Aviation Association org they have it on their website, a list of all the different usages of corporate aircraft. And I'll have that listed here at uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com, episode 14. You can find that at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Slash 14. I'm really excited because I have a special guest with me today, and uh, he's going to help us discover the unique and diverse aviation career path of a corporate pilot. His name is Tom Wachowski, and he flies a Challenger and a Falcon 2000 for a Fortune 500 company. And he's going to tell us a little bit about that. He's he's actually been flying professionally since 1999, and he's done everything from flight instructing to flying as an airline captain and flying as a charter pilot. Hey, Tom, welcome. Hi, Carl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this it's oh boy, I tell you, there's there. It seems like you've done just about everything. Your path to the where you are right now in the left seat of a uh, of a pretty sleek corporate uh, jet is is uh, been very varied. That's for sure. No, it has, and it it wasn't planned that way. And uh, when I started this career, you know, as you mentioned, it was flight instructing, and uh, had done that for uh, a couple of years, and then got real lucky and slid into a uh, regional flying position. And did that for almost five years until that um, company went out of business. And what was real interesting about that is, uh, you know, I spent most of my time there in the right seat and eventually made it to the left seat for a little while. But we would always taxi by the corporate ramps. You know, when you're at the big airports, you would be heading out to take off and you'd pass by uh, an FBO where there'd be some corporate jets parked. And I thought, you know, that that would be really fun to do. But... I'm probably never going to get to do that because I'm in an airline. The natural progression here is to go to a major and then, you know, and retire from a major. So that is probably something I'll never get to do. Well, as luck would have it, uh, the airline that I was at ended up going out of business and there was my opportunity. And so I uh, left the airline world and flew for a uh, banker who also 
chartered his airplane out. So we did, uh, you know, personal flying for him. And then we did uh, quite a bit of charter uh, where he rented the airplane out and uh, left him. I, I flew with him for uh, about a year and a half and then left him to go work for a family, which was a completely different experience working for somebody who just used their jet mainly for personal transportation to just a couple of places that they frequented. Now, they also chartered it out, so we did rent that airplane out and, and kept the charter thing going. Uh, and that did that for about two years. And while I was doing that, uh, I also would fly contract trips. You know, So there are companies and corporations who maybe one of their pilots is on vacation or, or or maybe the, you know, for whatever reason, they need a fill-in pilot. And so I would fill in, and I did that for uh, about half a dozen companies around the country, which led into the job that I have today because one of the contractors uh, was the company that I work with today. And it was blind luck and ended up in that position not by plan. It just kind of worked out that way. But it's, uh, that has been uh, a very interesting, and looking back now, it was tough at times, but looking back now, it was a really fun ride to get to to where I'm at today. Well, that, that's cool. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the fact that uh, it was pure luck. But I tell you, if if you weren't there doing that contract flying, then you probably would never have found out or they never would have found out about you. And that's something that's important to note is that if you want to get a flying job, you have to be in it. You have to be around flying because because of the advantages of networking. You know, that contract job was just like networking. That's exactly correct. That's interesting you bring that up because when I, when, when I was furloughed from the airline, uh, the airline was on the East Coast and I lived in Arizona. And I came home and I told my wife, I said, you know, we've got, I got my letter. We got about two months left. I got to figure something out. And so literally, I mean, you, you talk about aviation careers. I literally went out knocking on doors. I went to, I live in Phoenix. So I went to Phoenix. I went to Scottsdale, which is kind of the, the corporate um, airport in town, so to speak. I went to Deer Valley. I went to all the different airports in town, no kidding, and knocked on doors with resumes and cover letters in my hand to sell myself. And that is how I ended up working for the banker. I was knocking on the, uh, the – he had hired a company to manage his airplane. I knocked on their door and long story short, ended up there. And that's also how I ended up working for the family uh, was I, I knocked on the hangar door. <laughs> it was a pretty funny story because the uh, gentleman who manages the hangar was there and he said, sure, come on up, go upstairs and talk to so-and-so. And I did that. And when I got up there, the guy looked at me like, who, you know, who are you? What are you doing? You know, we're talking like a secure private hangar. You know, how did you get in here? But you were persistent. And that, that's what's important, especially in this career. You have to constantly be persistent. That's interesting that they, they actually opened the door and said, hi, that kind of thing. You know, usually they, they throw you out. You know, you, it's funny because you go back to networking. When I was flying for the banker, it was in a Lear. And I was in training one day with somebody who flew a Lear and a Challenger. And I said to him, well, I'd like to get into a Challenger one day just because it's more pay, it's a bigger airplane, you know, you want to progress your career. And he said, you know what, hold on a second. I, I know somebody up in Phoenix and he made a phone call. And what's really interesting about this, and this is something to pay attention to here. He made a phone call to a gentleman who works at the company I'm at today. Now, fast forward when I went to fly for the family, got the type rating in the Challenger, guess who the very first person I called was? <laughs> that guy that the guy way back in training called in Phoenix to tell him, hey, there's a guy here you might want to call one day. When I called the gentleman at the company I work for today and said, hey, if you guys ever need a contractor, I mean, this was literally me knocking on the door through the phone, right? 
give me a call. And that's how I got into their contracting. It was purely networking and talking with people. And that's extremely important, especially in the corporate world or any anything. It, it's networking. And a lot of jobs that I've been offered flying were just ex- kind of like what you said. I said, oh, yeah, I know this guy that can help out. And, you know, they, sure enough, they give you a call. That's 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 pretty cool. I mean, that, that's really neat how that works out. Say it was luck, but it was a lot of a persistence. And I'll tell you what's different today is something I've noticed because we do hire contractors today. Uh, for for vacations and those types of things. And something I noticed today is that, you know, there are a number of pilots out there in the corporate world uh, looking for contract work. And today, we really only bring in people who, you know, we expect the flying skills and, and all of those things to be there. But we're also looking for added added value that pilots can bring. So so we not only want guys that are good, you know, they can fly, you know, they have the right certificates and the right training and the right uh, background, but we also want people that know how to deal with people. We found in our uh, company that is the one of the biggest, probably uh, I guess the biggest trait that we need is you know we're dealing with basically lots of VIPs as well as lots of first time flyers who've never been on a corporate jet. And we've got this wide variety of people getting on board. You're not just a pilot. I mean, you're you're an ambassador for many different things, and so. When guys are out looking for contract work today, I would say that that's something important is is bring not only your pilot skills, but think of what other value you could bring to the opportunity, and and for full-time jobs, too. Right. You know, before we get into the differences in the type of flying and and exactly what you do day in, day out, um, just want to, you know, back up a little before we get into that. It's just, how did you get interested in flying? We never really talked about that. Oh, that's funny is uh, I would spend my vacation, my summer vacations as a kid. We would spend those in the UP of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula on Lake Superior. And one one year, a friend of mine, we had met every year up there and I was probably 10 or 11. He brought up this remote control airplane <laughs> and and we pieced it together. And I, I this is a this is a true story. We we made it into a seaplane and the floats were Coke bottles this is the true story. And we got this thing flying and I just thought that's really cool. So I. Uh, over the next couple of years, um, started flying RC and uh, did that. I was probably 13 or 14, somewhere in there. And flying was cool. And then we, we bought a ski boat and I became, a, I started water skiing like crazy. And when it, it throughout high school and then in high school, they said, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> I said, well, make any money water skiing. Uh, I don't know how to play a music instrument, so I can't go be uh, uh, in the music business, which is something else that I like. So, man, that flying was cool. Let's go do that. So I uh, went and got a private certificate to see if it's my thing. And uh, it was. I loved it. So I, I learned to fly, and I call it a cornfield in Michigan. It was a little tiny airport, Delta 98, uh, Romeo, Michigan, and uh, finished up over in Pontiac, Michigan, and then left, uh, decided, you know, hey, I've got this certificate. I really like this. And this would, you know, this was in the 90s when the industry was just starting to really ramp up. You know, United was starting to get big contracts and Delta was getting big contracts. And it was no joke, you know, a three to to seven million dollar career. And so I thought I need to go to school and get the things I need to bring to those opportunities at, at an aviation school. So I went and attended Embry-Riddle out in Arizona, and the rest uh, from there uh, did the flight instructing like we talked about earlier. And now you're you're in a job that I think most people would love to have. Now, how many years was that from the time you got started till till now? 
Well, I started professionally in 99, and we are in, uh, what are we in here, 12. So that's a 13 professional progression. And uh, this now this job you're flying now, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the actual flying part and how you have to interact with people. But first, tell us a little bit about the airplane. It's always exciting to hear about what people are flying. I think you had mentioned two planes. What planes are those? Yes, yeah, so we have uh, two planes in the department. One is a Challenger 604, and the other is a Falcon 2000, what they call a classic, uh, but only because they just stopped making that version. Uh, what's really neat about our fleet is uh, we have the same avionics packages in both airplanes. So switching between them is, is really a non-event. Uh, you know, there's some different limitations and some different speeds, and a couple of knobs are in different spots, but... 90 to 95% of the cockpits are the same. So that may, that's really nice from a standardization standpoint, from a safety standpoint. Uh, you know, all those things kind of come into play. Uh, just jumping between the two airplanes makes it very easy. And that Challenger, is that uh, considered like a CL-65 for those people into airplanes? CL-60 is the designator. So, so that's a Bombardier product. They started with the Challenger 600 way back in the day, uh, moved into the 601, and that uh, you know, was an improvement on the 600, then moved into the 604, which is basically a glass cockpit with bigger engines and brakes. And today they have the 605, which is, again, an avionics upgrade, uh, a couple of other things. I'm not real familiar with the 605, but it's the uh, same hull, same interiors and in all of those. Now, is it true that I, I flew a CRJ, a Canada Air regional jet, for a while, and that is similar to the Challenger, is it not? It, it is a Challenger with another 30 or 40 feet stuffed in the fuselage. Yeah, it's basically the same thing. The cockpits are slightly different, uh, but you could, if you flew a CRJ, you know, no joke, you could jump in a Challenger and go. I, I don't think I could do that now. That was, gosh, that was almost 10 years ago. I think I'd probably have to go through a little bit of training. Now, this Falcon 2000, that classic you were talking about, I, I know something different about it. It seems like there's a, a anhedral on the, was it on the tail there? Yeah, the Falcon is a very unique product, uh, the entire lineup, you know, all the way from their early 10s and 20 models up to their, they have the 7X today. And yeah, their, their products have anhedral, which makes the airplane look, I think, look very mean <laughs> sitting on the ramp. It's kind of a cool look. But I will tell you the difference between those two as far as physically manipulating the controls night and day. And, and just to, could you explain the anhedral, dihedral? I, I don't think we mentioned that before you go into the handling characteristics. Or so many, you know, a lot of airplanes, uh, the wingtips are higher than where the wings connect to the fuselage. You know, they, they call that the dihedral where you've got some bend in the wings upwards. And with the Falcon products, many of them, matter of fact, most of them, it's the opposite. The wingtips are a slightly lower than where they connect with the fuselage as well as the uh, horizontal stabilizer. And that's where you really notice it in Falcon products. It, it's got a real big tilt down. The tips of the horizontal stabilizer sit lower uh, than where they connect to the airframe. And how does that change how you fly the plane? Well, I, it doesn't so much change how you fly it. It changes, uh, it's one of the reasons I think the Falcon uh, responds differently to your inputs. And so let me give an example. You know, a Challenger, you flew the CRJ. That thing, you know, we call it a tank. I mean, it's a joke to get a response out of the airplane. It's very heavy and and literally, I'll fly a lot of approaches. We have an auto throttle system on our Challenger, so we can set the speed. And I will fly that uh, a, a good deal of the approach with two hands because it's such a heavy uh, airplane, and it's it's just it's very 
um, in the wind and wind shear and those types of things, it's just, it responds very sluggishly. Now take in contrast, the Falcon will shoot right through anything. I mean, it just, it holds a pitch attitude. It doesn't get upset and it just goes and you can fly an approach with three fingertips. It's a night and day difference in flying and that anhedral plays a part, but Falcon has a, a completely different philosophy on how flight controls are actuated. And I think that is actually what makes them fly differently. Now, actually, you know, flying the plane, that's, that's really cool. And, but a lot of our audience, they want to know about what it takes to be a, a corporate or a business aviation or private aviation flyer. And you had mentioned before that it really takes some type of personality and it, the ability to interact with people and interact well. Why is that so important in the, say, the business aviation side of things as compared to the airline flying? Well, you're, you're a one-man shop, so to speak. So, you know, in the airline world, a lot of stuff is done for you as a pilot. You're not loading bags. You're very rarely fueling. You might monitor your fueling. And you're very rarely making decisions on how the entire mission is going to go from beginning to end. You, you know, in the airline world, you, you fly the airplane. And contrast that to the corporate world where they will give you a mission. We want to go from A to B on this day at this time. See you then. And it's up to you and your team. You know, we have a team of, of five pilots and a dispatcher. It's all up to all of us to make, make that happen seamlessly and safely. So the difference is really in the things you're doing, different tasks in order to move that airplane from A to B. So it's not like the airline captain, sit down, get the paperwork and go. Everybody else does everything for me. I'm just coordinating things. You're actually physically doing things. Yeah, so we are uh, doing all the scheduling of the airplanes as well as the maintenance, uh, filing flight plans, keeping the airplane. You know, we have a we have a, a maintenance team who who does a great job, but we stay in constant communication with them to keep to keep the airplanes legal, uh, as well as getting food on board the airplane. Uh, certain passengers like certain things, so we try to cater to that. And uh, now I will say this, we might be a little bit different than some corporate operations because once we do land, the passengers. They're on their own. They know that. And they take accountability and responsibility for that. So once we land, we're kind of uh, maybe would come more to like an airline world. We, we shut the airplane, uh, you know, close it up and, and secure it. And then we go to a hotel just like an airline crew would. But that whole process repeats, you know, the next day where we got to get the airplane ready. We got to get the fuel. We got to get the flight planning. We get all the catering, get everything ready. So, again, it's a seamless operation uh, for the passenger. You're more of a manager of everything else, not just managing the flight itself like they do with the airlines. You're managing the whole process and, and everything else you're doing. Another thing that is interesting about your job, and, and maybe you can speak towards this, is I've noticed, I have friends that fly corporate, and I've only been able to do it a few times, but when I'm hanging out with them, this is what's different about the corporate pilots that I've seen at the airport. They become attached to the airplane they fly. It's almost as if they own that airplane. I, I'll see guys go in and they'll be cleaning, they'll be buffing it. They'll even go in sometimes when they're not flying and just make sure everything looks okay. Is, is that something you feel? You know, I, I would say the short answer to that is yes. You, you, do, you do build an emotional bond with the airplane. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, they're, they're, those airplanes you know, they're your baby, so to speak, when you go to work, you know, that's, it, it's something you're proud of. It's something that you, you treat, uh, like it's yours. I mean, that airplane is my airplane for all intensive purposes. And, and I treat it as such. 
so yeah, that would be a very accurate statement. Now, I will say this. I tell you, corporate aviation is it's across the board how different departments operate the airplane. So, you know, we have a maintenance department who, you know, they wouldn't get upset if we were cleaning the airplane and buffing it and doing things like that, but that's they take pride in that. You know, and they and we have a, a group that cleans the interior, you know, does the carpet and, and they take pride in that. So we are careful to try and help out as much as possible, but you know, also to allow the experts in certain areas to to do their jobs as well. That's really important is that when when you cross that line, especially maintenance issues. As a matter of fact, getting on maintenance issues and flying and this is what I've heard, and again, this is great that you're you're relating this to me and, and our listeners. In corporate aviation, do you feel at times pressured to fly either into weather or conditions that you shouldn't be or fly an airplane that's in a condition that really isn't airworthy? Have you ever felt that kind of pressure as a corporate pilot? Great question. And I will say, again, this goes back to how a department is operated. I have flown with uh, departments uh, as my full-time job and then also as contract who had differing philosophies on how you operate an airplane. So, for example, I've been in those positions, as I'm sure many of your listeners, if they fly corporate, have been as well, where they, they want to go. We don't care about maintenance. We don't care about weather. We don't care about whatever. And you, as the pilot in command, you know, they're paying. I, there was a great saying, a, a gentleman I used to fly with, he had this saying, and it, I thought it was, it was perfect. He said, you know what, they pay us to say no. Because these people often, they don't know any better. And they're really leaning on you to say, well, we really, we're not, we're not going to do that. Here's why. Here's an alternate solution. And then go from there. So, yeah, I've been in those positions. Now, thankfully, only once in my career did I have to put my foot down and say, I'm getting out of the airplane. We are not going to do this. It's not safe. Uh, that's only happened one time. And that was with, uh, you know, with a, uh, a contract operator. And, uh, and, we, and that, you know, that was that. Uh, but for the most part, it really goes back to, you know, I, I relate a lot of things in corporate aviation to business because they're very similar. The airplane is essentially its own business. And the number one rule in any business, it doesn't matter if you're an employee, you know, like many people listening to this, or if you own the business, is to get into business with the right people. So when I take that and I apply it to corporate aviation, I'm looking first and foremost at who are the principals. Who are the owners? What are they like? How do they think? What do they value? And some departments, they don't value uh, the safety, the standards, the training as much as other departments. Now, thankfully, where, one of the reasons I, you know, when I was applying to the job that I have now and was offered the opportunity to do that, had flown contract with them already, one of the big reasons I ran after that position was because I knew from my contract experience that they did everything right. And uh, in my almost four years there, that, that's been the case. Now, when you say contract, if you could just explain that for a second, because I think we've talked uh, in previous episodes about contract flying where you have a contract for years. What, what does that mean when you said contract flying? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, so it depends. <laughs> like many things in aviation, it depends. We use uh, contract pilots on a daily basis. So what that means is we have a list of pilots who are typed and trained in our airplanes. And if we need, you know, say we're going to go do a two-day trip tomorrow and we're short a pilot, we will call this contract pilot up, somebody who, who we know, and we say, hey, we got a trip tomorrow. Can you take it? And they would say yes or no. If they say yes, then we give them the trip details. 
and they show up and they fly the trip and we pay them a daily rate. And we also pay for all their food, all their hotel. They basically just need to show up and all of our contractors are right seat people. So show up and support the operation. Uh, now, Carl, you probably have friends. I have friends who do, you know, six month, 12 month, 24 month contracts. Uh, I'm not too familiar with those because ours are always on a daily a daily rate, so to speak. Right. And that's that's where, for instance, when I did some contract flying, I'd show up and they'd give me a day rate. Said, okay, thanks and uh, have a good day. You know, and then we'll call you if we need you. And yep. that, that's one type that, that you primarily are talking about. There's, there are other contracts where you can sign a year, uh, two months, two years, two months. Uh, there's, they, they vary quite a bit. Normally though, um, when you do get hired with an air, excuse me, with a corporate job, they don't want you leaving right away because they, they spend a lot of money training you. And most I've seen make you sign this contract that says you have to stay for 24 months. Is that, is that normal? You know, I think that's gotten more, uh, that's happened more in the last five years. Uh, I, I will say that, again, it goes back to who's leading the operation. Uh, you know, some, I personally, I view that as really, if somebody's going to require a pilot to sign a contract in order to, uh, you know, fly for them full time, it's, it, it, to me, that's a lack of good faith in the hire. You know, if you hire right, you shouldn't have to worry about people leaving. Uh, now, of course, it happens, but again, it goes back to the philosophy of the guy writing the check. Right. That makes sense. And so you really need to do your research about the company you're working for, is what you're saying, or the person you're working for. Another interesting thing about this corporate aviation is in the airlines, when you move jobs, you have to start all over again at the bottom of the list, and you're really not getting paid much. When you move from one corporation to another, do you take a huge pay cut? You know, it depends, uh, and it depends on a couple of things. One is the type of airplane. So if I was to leave the Challenger and Falcon and go fly a Lear, uh, which I flew a Lear for a while, I would fully expect, uh, you know, you mentioned NBAA earlier, the National Business Aircraft Association. They publish salary tables for different airplanes and different operations, whether they're uh, charter or not charter, whether you're left seat or right seat. So I know that a Lear pays less than a Challenger. I know that. So if I was to make that jump, I would do that knowing full well that I'm going to earn less salary, so to speak. Now, if you stay in the same airplane, it, it's across the board. It, it, again, goes back to that principle, to that check writer and how they value the asset, how they value the tool. Uh, sometimes you'll get a pay increase. Sometimes you'll get a pay decrease. And one thing that's interesting about corporate over the airline world is – when you look at compensation, quite often, especially if you're with a, a company versus like a family, there's other incentives that go along uh, with your total pay package. So, for example, some co corporate company operators will give you stock. Some will give you involve you in their bonus program. Uh, some may, uh, you know, many court. It's pretty standard for corporate flight departments to provide you with a cell phone, a computer, you know, all the tools that you need to do the job. Uh, so. Pay in corporate aviation is not really just about salary because there could be all these other avenues that add to your total comp package. And that's really important that you brought that up. I actually know some. Here's a good example. He left the airlines and he went to a corporate job starting out making 100000 a year. Now, you would never see that going to an airline. And then he told me a year later his bonus package was $100,000. So here the guy, his first year made 200000 a year, which is something 
you know, you wouldn't see at the major airlines for a long time until you're a senior captain. So that's some, that's an opportunity right there that you wouldn't have, say, at the, at the majors. But, you know, even though there's not quite as many jobs, you still can make those lateral moves. And if you're good at networking, you, you know, you can be fairly confident that you can get those corporate jobs. Now let's, let's talk a little bit about that, a little bit about losing your job and moving from job to job in the corporate world. I have friends and we all have that are in aviation that have lost their corporate job or flying for a certain family and, and but they want to stay doing that because they love that personal touch. You know, what do you, what do you do during that period from when you've gotten laid off from a corporate job till you find the next one? Well, that's a great question. I'll tell you, there's something that you do before you ever get laid off from that corporate job. And uh, I learned this early on when I was laid off in the airlines is you save, you save money because that bridge between being laid off, you know, for, for whatever reason, maybe they sell the airplane, maybe they don't want to own an airplane anymore and they want to use a fractional uh, company for Lyft, like a NetJets or, or something like that. For whatever reason, you don't know in the corporate world where you're going to stand in a month or a year quite often. That's not the case everywhere, but that's uh, 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 probably the safer assumption to go by. So before you ever get laid off, I would say you save money <laughs> to bridge that gap. Once the layoff happens, though, in corporate aviation, you naturally end up networking because you're sitting at, you know, at FBOs at airports with other corporate guys, and you're going to the training uh, with other corporate guys. And over time, you just build up a group, a group of friends, a group of colleagues and associates, and you stay in touch. And so if somebody ends up losing their airplane and losing their job as a result of that, we're all able to kind of reach out to each other and say, hey, you know, airplane's gone. What do you know? Do you know anybody? And I found in the corporate world that we really support each other a lot more than the airlines, and and only because in the airlines there is a system. You know, <laughs> when you get laid off and you you do you start over on the seniority list. There's a system already in place. But since there isn't in corporate, it's really a community that reaches out to take care of each other. You know, and that that's what's really neat. I think about the corporate world is they they do have their little networks there, and you see them even in geographic areas. Uh, they all know each other. When they you know, I've I've even seen in in an FBO, someone will say, "Hey, so and so lost his job," and there were everybody's out there trying to find him a new one. That's for sure. And uh, that that's an important point, too, as far as networking is concerned. One thing you talked about that, that I just want to highlight one more time is that you can go from one job to the next and actually have a pay increase. This is something that's not heard of in the airline world. You do not get a pay increase when you change jobs. So that's pretty important. Plus, the other thing you talked about, finance, uh, as far as corporate is concerned, it, that's true in anything, I think. I really like to stress to people, you have to have your house in order. You really, I find, it's just like owning a business where I could go out and buy a real fancy car, but no, I'm going to keep that money in the bank. I'm not going to buy a bigger house. I'm going to buy a smaller one. I'm going to pay that house off. I'm going to pay that car off, pay my debts off, really be financially stable because the industry is is so much in flux. You might get caught at the wrong time without a job, or you may not ever experience that. Well, I have friends that have never experienced a layoff, and they just happen to be lucky and be on those the right time going up and down during that industry. But uh, and and we'll talk a little bit more because you know Tom, you have some information to give folks, uh, and we'll talk about the end of our our discussion here as far as finance is concerned. But let me let me talk. Let's go to actual jobs in private aviation and. I'm glad we have you here because I want to talk about charter part 135 and then private flying. And for people that don't know the difference, could you explain a little bit about 
when people hear, well, we fly part 135, what, what does that mean? So essentially what that means is there are different rules that govern aviation. And in the airline world, it's the section of the regulations uh, 121. So you may hear a lot of times, oh, he works for a 121 company. He's, you know, airlines operate under the 121 section rules. When you get into charter, they operate under a different section, though very similar to 121. It's the 135 section of the book of regulations. The, and it's, it's a similar parallel operating um, envelope, so to speak, for the 135 versus the 121. But the difference, the main difference I've found, having done both, is in the 135 world, those rules are really written to provide you with a lot more flexibility. Because a person who rents an airplane, who charters an airplane, they don't want to go from, typically, they don't want to go from you know Chicago O'Hare to Washington Dulles. They want to go from Pelwaukee in northern Chicago to their home in Aspen. And they want to do it tomorrow at 3 o'clock. So the 135 world allows you to operate within those rules that provide you the flexibility to offer that service to somebody. You couldn't do that in a 121 world because they want everything scheduled and orderly and have processes in place to make all that happen. There's a, it's really in the flexibility of the airplane. 135, and that is, you know, somebody will pay a company to fly the airplane. But say an individual or a company owns the airplane, there's another set of rules, Part 91, where they fly under those. And I actually was partner in a in a business aircraft. It was a small little one, little four-seater, and they would fly some of their parts and people around. You know, what what is the difference there between 135, which is this charter and all these regulations, and Part 91? So the main difference there is essentially an airplane operating Part 91 is never going to be available to the public for hire. It's owned by, by a private company or a private individual, and they don't sell tickets on that airplane. Whereas in the 135 world, they would sell a ticket onto that, that airplane, just like an airline. They may operate it differently, but somebody's paying to use the airplane. In the 91 world, it's the principal's checkbook that is funding the operation. So we're not allowed in the 91 world to carry anybody for hire. We can only use the airplane in our, in our operation. We only use it for business use. There's no personal use of the airplane. You know, it's some corporations, you know, part of the compensation package of the senior people, the senior team, the CEO and CFO and those types, part of their compensation is so many hours on the jet. Uh, and that would be it would be uh, done under 91 because that's private company, the CFO, the CEO. They're not paying to use that asset. Uh, so the big difference is really, uh, of course, different set of rules that provide even more flexibility than 135. But also we will never charge anybody to fly in the airplane. And that sounds very varied, all these different things we talked about, 135, 91. And in there, there's all these different jobs and some examples. And this is kind of part of the show where I like to ask the guests, and I'll, I'll go first, about some unique jobs that, that they may have heard of in aviation and what other opportunities there are in the corporate and private flying. And, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go first with one that I thought was really cool. And I have a friend that just got hired with an individual who has some retail shops in the Houston area. And he goes out and flies to this person's ranch. On Friday, he goes to his ranch and drops a person off. And then he picks him up again on Monday. And that's his job. Every week, he flies a person to his ranch. Every so often does some other things. But but that's his weekly job. He flies out on Friday 
and then he comes back on Monday, and that's it. That's all he does there. But there's all sorts of jobs. There's jobs. Uh, we talked about dispatchers, and those are people that are licensed by the by the government to actually have a to be able to dispatch the aircraft. In other words, make sure it's safe to fly. And there's all sorts of things. So, Tom, is there any other jobs that you can think of? You know, that's interesting because uh, when I did some of the charter work we did was a lot of that. You know, people going out to their weekend homes or their summer homes. And uh, it was something that I learned. uh, And I didn't know that I had learned this until somebody said it to me. And I thought it was so true is that in corporate aviation, you know, a lot of times what happens is you can have a, a, a great job. You know, you're going to great destinations, but you're doing it on somebody else's schedule. So maybe your schedule is not that great. Uh, and then the flip side, you can have a really good schedule, but kind of go to really boring destinations. <laughs> and I found that to be true in the 91 world. People either have one or the other. They're going to cool places, but they're burning up their weekends, you know, or they've got a nine to five banker schedule, but they're going to boring places in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I found that to be very true. I've found that that's true also in everybody I've talked to. You have some amazing things you can do. Some people have no days off. I mean, if you think you're going to have a beer, that that's over with. You might have three days off a year and that's it. You're always on call if you're that close to the airplane. Uh, not all jobs are like that, but there are some. You know, that we talk a little bit about the different jobs besides flying also on this show. And there are many other jobs in the corporate aviation world that we might not think of. For instance, we talk about FBOs, and those are the fixed base operators. Those are the people that you know fill the plane with the gas. They arrange a lot of times for the catering, and they also tell you where to park and put the planes in, and they're very customer service oriented. When you pull up in a corporate jet, you can pull up to these FBOs, and there are some jobs there that people don't realize. That's a really intense customer service job. So somebody who, say, in the field of working in a hotel and loves customer service but really likes aviation, I think they really should look at, at that type of a job. Is there anything else, Tom, that you can think of besides flying that, that people can look towards? Well, you know, you had covered some of it earlier. When I think of our own operation, of course, we have the pilots and we have the dispatcher, but we have a, we have a full maintenance staff as well, and we have a full ramp staff as well. So, you know, people who could go into the careers of you know, working on airplanes and managing them and keeping them uh, airworthy. And then there's also, you know, the customer service world, like you mentioned, is, is a big deal because, you know, as, as a corporate pilot, we lean heavily on outside, you know, we call them vendors, but outside help. You know, we lean heavily on the FBO people, not just the ramp people, but the, the folks working at the front desk. The folks that are in charge of transportation, many FBOs have you know, limo service and, and all the types of things you need to get your people from A to B. You just walk into one of these places and you can see oftentimes people doing two or three different jobs because you know, moving the airplane from A to B is the easy part. It's supporting everything up to and after that where all these jobs kind of come into play. And they're great networking opportunities we have people who worked on the ramp at the FBO at, at, the airp- at where we're at, the airport, and now they're flying. And they got that because they were networking through that ramp or that customer service or that mechanic, that other job in aviation. And that's really important, too. I think people really, if they want to go into aviation and say it's, a, it's a, yeah, maybe a midlife change in careers and they don't want to take all that time and money, they can actually do this, especially if they're in those different fields. There's always, there's something for everybody in aviation, I feel. But, Tom, looking at 
people that are thinking about corporate aviation, business aviation, private aviation, everybody thinks it's all about, you know, flying CEOs and, and flying rock stars and Hollywood stars. There, there's so much more and we touched on those things. Now, what would advice would you give to somebody that's thinking about possibly getting into the world of business aviation? Well, I would say the number one thing to do is to get to know as many people as you can and to get as much flight time as you can. Now, I don't, uh, I don't say get the flight time because you would, uh, you know, in the airlines, they have these minimums. In the corporate, you know, flight time minimums. In the corporate world, there are flight time minimums, but I'll, I will be honest with you, every job I've gotten in corporate aviation, I did not meet those. It was more, they were, not, they were hiring more the person than the pilot. Uh, you know, the piloting skills had to be there. So I would say, get out there and just meet as many people as you can. Get into any airplane you can that's airworthy and safe to build time and, and get into the left seat and do whatever it takes uh, within reason to build the resume of experience uh, both in the airplane as well as experience in types of operations like we talked about that's valued in the corporate world, having experience in different types of operations. And get out there, talk to people, and keep plugging away and expect hurdles, expect challenges, but keep your eye where you want to go and you will get there. And I'm living proof of that. Well, that's some great advice, Tom. I appreciate your, you know, relaying that to our listeners. As a matter of fact, if you want to learn about corporate jobs, you know, stay tuned here. We're going to try to interview quite a few people about those jobs and business aviation. As a matter of fact, Tom, maybe we could even have you back on in the future to talk about certain jobs in corporate aviation. That would be fine. You know, the one neat thing about aviation is that you do get to do so many different things on your time off. And that's true also in, in corporate and business aviation. You know, we talk about the airline pilots, how they have, you know, the schedules 15 days off, 20 days off. But, you know, you talked about your schedule and you have a lot of downtime also. Now, that gives you the opportunity to go out and pursue some other interests, whether it's hobbies or a business. And, you know, Tom, you had told me a little bit about uh, some of the things you were doing. I, you know, maybe you could explain a little bit about what you do on your days off. Sure. So back when I was in the airlines, uh, as you mentioned, had a lot of time off. And I had to, you know, help fund my wife's master's degree. And, and we had to help fund kind of the beginning of our lives. And so I needed to make more money. And I wanted to. I was bored. Uh, you know, when we landed, there was nothing to do. So I'm the type of person that just wanted to get out and do something. So when I was in the airlines, I actually started a life insurance business that uh, morphed itself in later years into an investment business, which I sold about two and a half years ago. And that, that kept me very busy. And I had some real estate ventures in there as well. And that, that all kept me really busy on my downtime. So yeah, there is ample opportunity in the airline world and in many corporate uh, worlds as well to pursue things you know, on your downtime, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a second career, whether it's an interest, uh, whatever it may be. The thing interesting is some, in some corporate uh, operations, there's also opportunity within the company. I, and I look at our own operation, for example, and there's opportunities within our company to pursue different areas of the business. So, you know, we, uh, are, there's a philosophy here that if you want to reach out and learn about other parts of the business, you can do that. So we've got the downtime to do it. And if somebody wanted to do that, they could do so. So the downtime really allows you to kind of shape your life outside of aviation. Again, hobbies, interests, whatever it may be. Specifically, what is it that you're doing now outside of uh, the aviation world? Do you, you said you may have a, you have a website or something. 
I, I uh, you know, I had sold that investment business a couple of years ago and uh, got bored. <laughs> I, could, I, need, I just, I'm the type that can't just sit around. So I took all the knowledge and the experience and the expertise that I had gained there and applied it to teaching people uh, about money because it was an investment business where we did life insurance investments. I learned that industry inside and out and decided that it was time to not so much go sell people products and services, but instead teach them about products and services so that they could make better decisions. And so that was one, one venture that I, that I ran down and uh, kind of did a similar thing because I had learned a lot about business. I decided to kind of do some teaching on that and built another website around that. And both of those I, uh, I house at what I call considerate brands. It's considerate with an IT. And those are just kind of ventures to keep my mind going. Uh, I enjoy the topics. I enjoy teaching people about them. And uh, I can do them when I'm on an overnight or wherever I might be while I'm at work. And thus why I podcast, too. I mean, this is terrific. We can do these things on our time off and our downtime, and that's terrific. And I, I think that's great. I looked at the website. I think it's really cool. It talks a little bit about uh, trying to basically get your house in order as far as finance. And, and you can find that at Consider It Brands. That's uh, ConsiderITBrands.com. You know, Tom, thanks for relating all this information to us. Uh, just wondering, can you stick around? We have a couple of uh, listener questions. Pleasure. You know, uh, we get a lot of emails from listeners about aviation careers, and I have actually three questions, and these three questions come from the same person. His name is uh, Patrick. So let me just read that, and, uh, you know, I'll respond, and maybe, you know, Tom could put his uh, his input there. Patrick writes, uh, first, I think the podcast is a great idea. You truly hit the nail on the head when you said that you were looking to fill an unmet need with this. Thank you. You're welcome, Patrick. Uh, Patrick, uh, at age 40, he received his private pilot ticket. Now he's 41, and he's working on his instrument rating, and he has just over 110 hours total flight time. He has three questions, so we'll, we'll take them individually. Question one, uh, here it is. Currently, I'm in sales and cover multiple states and would like to approach my employer about flying to accounts. I would need to rent, which I'm doing currently, or would consider a flying club as an option. I would like to hear from others in similar situations and how they introduce their company, pros and cons for me and my company, pitfalls, cost analysis to this idea. Now, this, Patrick, this is interesting. I, there's a couple of pros and cons in general. When you talk to a company about flying there, you really need to, to sell them on the idea that it's going to be much more efficient travel wise. The other thing that I found, because I have a lot of experience with other friends that have done this, is I, they have to say to them, listen, I'm going to go there by airplane, but if the weather's bad because you're flying a smaller plane, you're, you're not going to go by air. You're going to go by car. So you really do need to give yourself more time. Now, what it does for you and the way you can sell this is the fact that you're going to get there to the client quicker. You're going to get your job done, and you're going to get home quicker. So you may have had to miss two days of work. Now you're only going to miss one. You also mentioned about flying clubs, renting, and, and other options. I have a friend that was in the flying club I was in in New Jersey, and he had some challenges with this because you you have to understand if you're going to have a club or you're renting, you're going to have to use that plane with other people and coordinate that with other folks. It's it's a little bit easier if you can take the plane at a, a much more flexible schedule, and that can be set up. And I've been in a partnership where that was set up where the partner could take it for a week or two weeks at a time, and there was basically like a co-op. And those are the things you have to look at. The, and, of course, the cost analysis, that's really up to your, uh, you know, the, the, the boss. And you have to tell them, hey, this is what it's going to cost me to get from point A to point B. And, you know, this, you know, 
am I going to be able to reimburse you for that type of money or not? Who knows, you know, if that's going to work out or not. You know, driving might be cheaper. How about you, Tom? Do you have any uh, any advice on on this question? Yeah, you know those are those are all good points, Carl. And, and uh, you know NBAA has a uh, section of their website for exactly this type of thing. When you're trying to support the case for having an airplane involved in transportation of people, I think they call it no plane, no gain. Uh, I think is their program. But they have a lot of statistics and research that would be useful for somebody going to their boss, going to their principal or their owner of the company to pitch this. Uh, you know NBAA would be able to support you there, of course. All of that being said, like you mentioned, there, there's got to be a business case. Uh, I've seen in corporate aviation, you know, it sounds great to save two days, but show me, show me that on paper. And uh, I have heard of a program, and I cannot recall the name of it, but there is a program out there, I suppose if you Googled around, that uh, what it does is it assesses travel. You, know, you plug in people, you plug in salary ranges, and you plug in destinations, and it will give you a cost analysis break-even graph of does it make sense to go use an airplane or does it make sense to drive or does it make sense to get a fractional or does it make sense to buy an airplane? It's, and I forget the name, but that would be something very useful to this fella you know, in going to his boss. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes once we find that for you. And you can find that at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 14. You'll find the link to that once we, once we uh, find that and put that right underneath your question there. But that's some good advice, Tom. Uh, you know, Patrick has another question here, and actually there's two within this one. He says, uh, I'd like how you discuss having a career contingency plan, which makes perfect sense in this day and age. I have a few rental properties a significant distance by car from where I live. This is part of my contingency plan. I'm considering another rental property or a plane and lease it back to the local rental company as a next venture. There's two questions. How does someone own and fly in support of their personal business, pros, cons, financial implications, and is a leaseback financially profitable slash break-even, come contractual considerations with the rental company, uh, and, you know, the different things from an accountant perspective. Now, I'm not going to talk too much towards the accountant perspective except for the fact that uh, there's some good stuff out there on, we've talked about mbaa.org, but also AOPA, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association.com, they have some great contracts and great break-even analysis and the pros and cons to having all these different types of things, LLCs, businesses, and how to set up a lease back even. And there's lots of books out there. And I'll have a couple links to those books on, on this uh, episode here. But the as far as a, a rental property or an airplane, I'm not saying that they always lose money, but if I, if it was me, I look more towards the rental properties. Airplanes, you know, the old saying, if you want to make a million dollars in the uh, aviation business, start with $2 million. I think that's somewhat true. But with that said, you can make some money. Any, any uh, input there, Tom? I, I would agree with that. When I hear people, and, and I don't necessarily talk to so many maybe, you know, in this gentleman's position, but it's the same deal. When I talk to people who are thinking of buying an airplane to make money with it, uh, whether it's charter or leaseback or whatever, I, I can't help but be genuinely concerned because I have yet to see a viable profit from an airplane that you can directly measure. In other words, you know, the P&L shows owning this airplane, leasing it back or owning this airplane and renting it out actually made us X dollars. Uh, combined with the risk, the risk is what scares me the most. You know, so many people go out and build these great companies, great organizations providing valuable services or products to society, 
and expose themselves to unnecessary risk because they just want to make a sales call once a month using the airplane. So the, the risk is also something that concerns me uh, when this gentleman's looking to, you know, with what he's looking to do. And, and those are all really good advice there. The, the other thing, too, as far as career contingency planning, I think uh, Tom has on his website some given information there, too. In general, you really need to uh, to definitely have some type of contingency planning. Now, going back to that, as far as making money, I will say this. You know, people say you can't make any money in aviation and flying small planes. Not totally true. I mean, I do, especially some of the sponsors I have that have flight schools, they do make quite a bit of money. But it normally is, it takes a while to build that up. And there are some great economies of scale. The airplane that I've seen on their balance sheets, the airplane really is an expense. Where they make their money is in the classes that they provide and the instruction that they provide, not the actual airplane rental itself. They make some money, but hardly any. It's the teaching is where they make their money. And that's something that I think you really have to look at is, you know, maybe instead of getting the airplane, you know, go out and get yourself a flight instructor certificate and get your insurance and you, know, you have a lot, lot less uh, risk there. Now, with that said, there are certain specific types of training where I've seen people make some really good money, and that's especially in the aerobatic field where they'll have a specific flight school just for aerobatic flying or flying certain types of, uh, you know, tailwheel aircraft. But anyway, moving on, we only have, I know we're going a little long, so we only have a few more minutes before we close. So here's the last question he has, and this is question three from Patrick. He says he's married with two kids, six and three. Uh, my wife works, is basically the breadwinner, and together each make low six-figure income annually. Ultimately, I'd love to fly for a living. At age 41, the private and 110 total time. Is a career as a pilot, likely regionals, at best with such a long road ahead, feasible? What would be the best course of action? What time frame and financial burden can I expect? Now, let me just say this with the regional airlines. Uh, I've actually, when I got into the regionals, I started, let's see, in 01, and I was making six figures by the time I was there in 06. So that was a five-year span. Now, when I say I was making six figures, you know, I was working like crazy to make that kind of money. It's not, especially at the regionals, because of the fact that you can pick up time, you can work extra hours, especially at the regionals, you can make that money, but you also have to look at your lifestyle. I've seen myself and I've seen friends of mine really get burnt out. So you, you really look, have to look at those, those numbers at the airlines. Most of the, now the regional carriers that I'm talking about are the jet regionals that are flying 50, 70, 90 seat jets. Those are the ones you're going to make this, the good money with as a captain. That could take you anywhere from five to ten years to make captain there. In, in the boom times, uh, gosh, we had captains upgrading in twelve months, and uh, but we're, we don't see that very often. That might happen in the next few years, but it's not that often that that happens. So yeah, you can, you can stay at a regional as a career. I mean, I see that as an option with a lot of people. About twenty twenty five percent do that. Uh, but there's also after you get some time with the regionals, you know, we're talking about this today. Corporates is, an, is another example. While you're at the regionals, start thinking about maybe even doing corporate. How about you, Tom? Do you have any uh, extra things you can add to that? I think the biggest thing to think about, you know, being 41 with 100 hours, uh, you know, those statistics that you mentioned is, is what are you looking to do? What do you want? You know, looking down the road five years or 10 years, where do you see yourself in the aviation game? Because so many people I know, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard that story too, Carl, where somebody's trying to, should I jump into this as a career? When in all reality, what they want to do is just get up in the air a couple of times a month 
you don't necessarily need to go down that long debt burden road, you know, to an airline in order to get up in the air once a week or, or twice a week, you know, throughout the month. So it really comes back, I think, to what do you want? What are you trying to get out of aviation? Is it a career or is it an experience or is it both? Really examine that. Great advice. Great advice, Tom, because you, you do have to define your specific career goal. And that's what we try to do here at Aviation Careers Podcast. You know, you know, Patrick, thanks for the questions. You know, I really enjoy receiving these type of questions and answering them so all of our listeners can benefit. If you have any questions or anything concerning aviation, aviation careers, and you'd like them to be answered on this podcast, please submit them by going to the contact page at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact. You can also send me a question via Twitter at Flying Careers or on Facebook, which is facebook.com, Aviation Careers Podcast. Or, you know, if you want, email me directly. Uh, it's Carl, C-A-R-L, at aviationcareerspodcast.com. And, you know, another person that's going to help me out with, with some of this corporate aviation and any of your questions is, is Tom here. And how would they get in touch with you, Tom? Yeah, the best way to, to reach out to me is uh, probably by email. Uh, I do go on Twitter and I do go on Facebook, but email I check every single day. And we can put uh, my email address in the show notes because it's a long one. We'll give it here, but it's, it's Tom, T-O-M, and my last name, Wachowski, W-A-C-H-O-W-S-K-I, at me.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions, provide advice, perspective, et cetera. Well, you know, this is, uh, that's great, Tom. And, of course, you can send them here, and we're, you know, we'll have Tom on again. We'll definitely uh, and to talk about corporate careers and, and everything in aviation, really, since He's really, really done just about everything there. But uh, I would I really suggest you, like Tom said, everybody who's out there listening to discover what your aviation career goal is. Try to figure out what it is you want to do because everybody's situation is different. And then when you do that, define that goal. Just keep looking towards that goal. Keep walking towards that goal and your eye on it, and you will achieve the goal that you want to achieve. Well, I really appreciate everybody listening today and and of course, I, I appreciate Tom for coming here today and talking to all of us. And this is going to close out our episode 14 of Aviation Careers Podcast. You can find this at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 14. You can also find us on iTunes. Safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.